You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. And welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here along with my co-host India Jackson to get the dialogue going. You haven't been here with me in a while. I'm so happy to have you, India. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a little while, huh? I know. I've been on here ranting for a while by myself. You know what happens when I talk in a <laughs> in a room by myself? It's a little dangerous. The ratings go up. That too. <laughs> Apparently y'all like me ranting, but there's that. <laughs> um, I figure that it makes perfect sense to bring you back today um, because we have a community member that I thought that, like, I couldn't think of a better person to really bring back, to bring in rather. And- to talk about a few things that I feel like um, people may not have any awareness of, but also I've known her for a little bit now and I'm like, she's pretty awesome. So let's do this. <laughs> um, over the years, I've known a few different aspects of what she's done um, in her career with her art. And it's, it's really been, you know, nice to continue getting to know even more about her and, I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about Hannah Lowe Corman. I feel like I need to put on my professional voice as I read her bio. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah is the co-founder and president of the LCMD Research Foundation, which she helped establish in order to urgently translate scientific research into treatments and ultimately a cure for this fatal childhood disease. She's also an independent artist and a yoga teacher living and working in Houston, Texas with her husband and two sons. In what seems like a prior life, she was a healthcare banker helping nonprofit healthcare institutions obtain financing. Hannah, thank you for being here with us today. Thank Welcome. you so much for having me, India and Erica. I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. I'm like, wait, 
What's a healthcare banker? I got to pause for a second. What what is is that? that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a healthcare banker is somebody who works at a bank whose customers are exclusively healthcare organizations. So all of my customers were hospitals, long-term care facilities, um, and sort of tangential healthcare um, businesses and institutions, nonprofits, for-profits. Yeah. And so anything that, you know, you or I would go to the bank for, I was that person for those healthcare institutions. Interesting. It makes sense, but I never knew it was a thing. I know. Isn't that so funny how many jobs are like that? <laughs> no, I'm like, I'm like, well, thank you for that education because I, I had no idea. But it, it makes perfect sense. And the beauty of that was it probably gave you some information that maybe if you had known it, 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 it could have shifted um, you establishing the LCMD Research Foundation. Oh, you have no idea. How many things in my life have somehow set me up for exactly where I am? It's eerie for sure. I've done a lot of different things in my life and many of them are coming back to haunt me. Like (laughs) in a a good way, in a good way, (laughs) like in a way that's like, oh, I've been here before. Like I know this a little bit. I know a little bit about it. You know, not an expert on anything, but I know a little bit about a lot of things. Right. Speaking of that, one of the things that you did in your life is you joined our community and our onboarding process in our community that many people don't know um, is it takes you through selecting a cause that you're in support of. Um, Could you talk to us a little bit more about like how you went about choosing your cause for the community itself, but also like as a person? Absolutely. So I chose two causes, actually. I chose healthcare and the arts, and I don't think that was necessarily a combination that was a predetermined selection. I think I manually input that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) of course, um, you know, the arts, because that's kind of my career path these days um, and something I'm, you know, passionate about creating and making sure others uh, have the opportunity to stay creative because I think as children we all have that innately and then often throughout the course of our lives there's just less and less time to remain creative in whatever way that is. Um, so that's of course important to me. And then healthcare, yes, I kind of I've also always had this relationship with the world of healthcare. I come from a family with a lot of doctors and nurses. And as we talked about, I worked in healthcare banking. <laughs> um, and so I have a lot of friends and acquaintances and family who are like in that world of, um, of healthcare and even elder care and such. And that has also always been something that I've been passionate about giving back to, you know, so I, yes, it was part of my job, but then also, you know, volunteering 
four different organizations that are healthcare related. Um, I sit on the advisory board of a long-term care facility in Maryland. Um, when I moved to Michigan for my husband's job, I volunteered and subsequently worked for the cancer support community, which provided free services for anybody um, impacted by cancer. So throughout my life, I've always kind of volunteered or had a connection with healthcare, and it's an area that um, is very much of interest to me, just from a knowledge perspective. And so then as fate would have it, I guess, uh, here we are. We, my husband Mark and I have two children, as you mentioned in our, my bio, and the younger child, Austin, is he is a year and a half old now. And at about six months old, he was diagnosed with this rare form of muscular dystrophy called LCMD for short. The full name is LMNA-related congenital muscular dystrophy. And that just means that it's a muscular dystrophy that is very early onset from birth and is a result of a mutation in the LMNA gene. And what's very, I don't know, a bit hard to wrap my head around is that it's this mutation and this disease is kind of a random occurrence in nature. Um, it's not like a genetic condition that one might think of where there, there's an inheritance. This is just a randomly occurring mutation that just happened, you know, as Austin was, was forming. Um, and it results in this pretty awful thing. Um, and we had no idea. So he was a pretty typical child, baby. He was, you know, he had issues, but all sorts of things that people kind of assured us are within the realm of normal or he would work his way out of, etc. And he wasn't gaining weight around um, five or six months old. And the gastroenterolo gastroenterologist wanted to admit him to the hospital for a feeding tube to ensure that he would get proper nutrition. And we were very reluctant um, because we kind of thought like, oh, well, you know, maybe he'll just start eating solid food at six months and it'll just be, you know, he'll start gaining weight and it'll be fine. But we said, okay, fine, let's do it. We went to the hospital and we thought, okay, he'll get fed. All will be right in the world and we'll just move on with our lives. <laughs> and instead... They ran genetic testing. They looked at um, his whole exome of his DNA. And they came back and they said, he has this disease. And this is what it means. It means that he may never sit up, which he doesn't. He may never crawl, which he doesn't. He may never stand or walk. And obviously, he doesn't do those things. Um, and he will just get weaker and weaker until he can no longer move, essentially. And that children 
you know, typically die from heart complications in their, you know, they really couldn't say when because there's so few children with this in the world that there's, I guess, not enough data to really say this is the trajectory or this is the progression. Um, but I think they typically say between like eight and 10 years old, they start to develop heart problems and then it's kind of just a waiting game. So, yeah. So they said there's not really anything to do except for keep him healthy as best you can and do physical therapy. But don't do too much physical therapy because you don't want to overexert his muscles. Right. So, I mean, also, like, it was just a very rude awakening of a life that we were not prepared for and, like, thrown into and just, you know, we were talking before this, Erica, really briefly, just I think it's a situation that one does not ever fathom could happen to them. And these stories are not that uncommon, really, when you hear of folks um, whose family members, you know, have some sort of um, illness or condition or something that's, that's kind of catastrophic or tragic tragic and I think I think our my natural reaction at least prior to this was like oh that could never happen to me um but here we are so so yes so this has become kind of an urgent matter right like healthcare was always of interest to me and now it's like my life <laughs> right well and I just first of all thank you because yeah. you know you don't have to share and the beauty of you sharing is um, those that are listening are able to humanize, you know, your foundation. Because honestly, I think in a lot of cases, it seems like this very removed thing. I don't mm. know anyone that has that. That doesn't apply to me. And so um, the humanizing of it, I do think can sometimes, you know, make people kind of uh, pause and think a little differently. And I want to acknowledge that you could have very easily said, well, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm not doing anything else. I'm not going to care about anything else. I'm simply going to go into a bubble with my child and the rest of the world can just kind of buzz off. I don't care. Mm, yeah. And we did do that for a while, for sure. <laughs> well, yes. But you, you could still very well be there. And I would not be. I would understand. Yeah. Fair. Thank you. Yeah, that's true, though. I mean... If you look at the statistics, there are something like 7,000 rare diseases, and a rare disease is defined as having fewer than 200,000 cases in the United States. This is like the U.S. definition. Um, mm -hmm. Like this disease, LCMD, there's 200 kids in the world that we know of. I mean, there's certainly probably more just because as we talk about healthcare and inequality and the lack of genetic testing across the world, right? Or mm -hmm. even um, access to, but it's too expensive or insurance doesn't cover it. Or like there's so many layers of um, right. reasons why somebody might not be diagnosed with this, but still might have it that we just don't know. Right. right. But so, yeah, in any case, I mean, 7,000 diseases, it's like, you know, millions and millions of people. And so chances are you probably know somebody with a rare disease, right? Whether or not it's a, a child or an adult, whether or not it's something that you could see from the outside or not. 
um, mm-hmm. it definitely affects many more people than I at least was aware of. You know, rare disease day is February 28th, I believe. And this was not a day that was on my radar last year, right? Like this year, I know lots more things. Right. So right. it's been a learning experience. But yes, as you said, we we kind of took this up and said, okay, they say there's nothing we can do. Let's Let's dig in and let's figure out if that's really true. Um, and so that's why we started this nonprofit to raise money to fund research where there's, you know, there's research being done um, for sure. But because it's a rare disease, like the overall pie of money going to it is pretty small. So we're just trying to expand that pie and expand the areas that people are looking into um, and expand like the network of people working on this disease as well. Because right now it's a pretty small universe of folks um, looking at it. So it also sounds like maybe it's like prioritizing this as well for people where it may not have been on their radar. It might not have been a priority in what type of research they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. What we have learned is that medical research is super expensive and, um, or, you know, the development of something that's going to go into a person is super expensive. And the companies that typically do that, such as pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies, you know, they're going to make the choices that make the most economic sense for them, right? So they're going to work on the diseases that have the biggest populations because if they can create a drug or something to treat that group, that's going to be much more profitable than something that's going to treat 200 people. Um, So that is absolutely correct. Like we have to be the advocates and the people um, with the, honestly, with the financial backing to say, we want somebody to work on this because just because so few people have it doesn't mean it's not important. Right. Um, But yeah, but it doesn't necessarily make like financial sense. So (laughs) that's also a good reason I think to have, to have that nonprofit status, right? Like at least in the U S you know, a nonprofit is for the greater good, right? So like LCMD research foundation is not, for Austin. It's obviously we're doing it because of him, but, um, you know, it's to advance the research on behalf of the whole patient population. So early in the year in the community, we talked about how to find out where the money goes when you donate it. And when you have your cause of choice and you put that money into it, what happens is sometimes people don't always know how much has gone into having to create this entity and a, a nonprofit is it's an entity. Um, and so that the beauty is, is you already had a background in the healthcare banking piece, which again, did not even know that was a thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, can you share a little bit about what that process was of setting that up? Yes, definitely. So, right. A nonprofit in the U S is a specific, you know, entity designation by the IRS. And 
sometimes it's it's under a section of the IRS code called 501c3. So often you'll hear people say it's a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, there are other kinds of nonprofits actually that are not 501c3s, and these are like member organizations or I, I don't really know. There's some other things, but okay. <laughs> for this, for 501c3, basically what you have to do is first you have to incorporate yourself or the entity as a business. In We incorporated in Texas since that's where we live. I don't think you necessarily have to incorporate in the state you live in. Um, but our council recommended that that was a fine place to incorporate. So we did that. We applied for uh, a tax identification number from the IRS, and we got that. So those kind of steps are any sort of typical steps that any business is going to take, right, to become a, a business in the eyes of the IRS. Um, then what we had to do on top of that was fill out an application and submit it to the IRS that says why we would like to have this 501c3 nonprofit status, which basically gets us a tax exemption from taxes, right? So that means that we don't have to pay taxes on all the money generated, and that means that all those folks who donate to us get a tax deduction as well um, because they're making a charitable contribution. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know the whole history of like how this came to be, but I would suspect that it's something like the government wants to incentivize people to give away money to organizations that are working for the greater good, something like that. Right. So I suppose they create this, this type of entity to enable, you know, to enable that work to be done and then also to enable folks to, um, to donate to that sort of thing. So we fill out the application. It is, um, as all things with the IRS, a bit, uh, a bit opaque, right? Like you just have to follow the instructions <laughs> and do the best you can and um, answer all the questions about why you're going to be for the public benefit, um, where your funding is going to come from. I think we had to do a three-year financial projection um, and, you know, list out our board members and their backgrounds. And they want to just see that you're not setting this up for some sort of private dealing or private inurement. Um, mm -hmm. And... They do have a test, basically, that's like, I'm going to get it a little wonky, but um, they want to see that the income you're generating from donations comes from a wide group of people or entities or grants, whatever. Like, they don't want to see that 50% of your revenue comes from Hannah Lowe and Mark Corman, right? Like <laughs> that they were going to be like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not a true public charity where you're going out and soliciting and um, getting the community involved. That's 
they, that is a thing. That's a private foundation. And that is, has different tax rules essentially. So all these things, you know, we just, you just kind of have to check all these boxes and make sure that you're, that you're following all the rules, um, in order to gain essentially this, um, beneficial tax exempt status. So we send in that paperwork and then we wait and wait and wait and (laughs) wait more, (laughs) wait some more. They say it can take, you know, around six months. Um, and so I think we submitted our paperwork, I want to say in like late October and then maybe in the early part of this year, we were quote unquote assigned to somebody at the IRS to look at it and review it. And then that person signed off on it. And then their supervisor had to sign off on it. And all this, once you get assigned, you, um, well, you don't get notified of any of this, right? Like we just call like the 800 number like every week. And like, <laughs> what's the status? What's going on? And they're very friendly. And they're like, this is what we're here for. No problem. Call as often as you'd like. Um, so finally they say, oh, okay, you're assigned to so-and-so. Here's that person's number. So then you start calling that person. And you're like, what's going on? Have you looked at our application yet? <laughs> and you know, finally, I guess with enough annoying on our part, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was approved. And then they say, okay, well, you're approved. However, it still might take six weeks for your a- approval letter to come in the mail. <laughs> well, can you email it to me? No. Can you fax it to me? No. Like you just have to wait <laughs> for this it to come in the mail. So dated. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, and you know, we actually file the application. You do file it online, so like things are moving kind of into the future, right? But still, still, the whole thing is oh very lab- labor intensive. So. Finally, we got our letter in the mail. I'm trying to think. And they update their database. And we all think that's wonderful. But it still is funny, just the process of this whole thing. We're still kind of in it. Um, There's a website called GuideStar that, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar, but it basically lists all public charities, maybe private foundations too. I'm not sure. But Basically, it's kind of like an, a database and maybe a little bit of like a watchdog kind of thing. Like, um, And so often, I don't know, there's just been situations where you basically have to be in GuideStar's database for the world to consider you a nonprofit, even though you've gotten your IRS letter. But of course, the process to get into GuideStar is just time. They're like, oh, we update it, you know, every so often. And um, yeah, you just wait. And, you know, the number of people who have very kindly suggested that we sign up for Amazon Smile, you know, so that mm. people can choose us and get donations done that way, which, right. yeah, totally wonderful suggestion, totally valid suggestion. Amazon uh, Smile's like, you need to be in GuideStar. Maybe you'll be approved by mid-June. So like, okay, we incorporated on August 14th of 2020 and we're still, like we're official, but it's still 
these like tail end pieces. It's just not a fast process and it's not, it's not necessarily a hard process. It's just like not knowing exactly what to do, right? Like we, we have counsel that is lovely and helps to guide us. Um, And yeah, never having done it before, it was crucial that we had somebody to to kind of point us in the right directions with these things. Um, right. Then again, I think now that having done it one time, I could probably do it again, knock on wood. Not that I want to, but I could. <laughs> <laughs> so just to pause for a second, for those of you that are listening that are like, what is GuideStar or Smile? Um, mm. GuideStar is, and Hannah, please add in any pieces I may be missing or getting incorrect, but it's basically a website that nonprofits um, are on that allows the general public to go on and to fact check and see like where their money is going, how much of the donations are going to salaries, what that breakdown financially looks like. Um, You're able to actually review their tax documents um, for any nonprofit that is on the site. Uh, What is that form called again? I think it's a The 990. There we go, 990. Um, And for organizations or businesses or even individuals that want to have some additional sense of security that the nonprofit that they are donating to um, is actually using the majority of the funds to do what they say that they're trying to achieve, that's a way to check that out. And so it sounds like Amazon Smile is requiring you to have a profile there, but then also Amazon Smile allows individuals when they're shopping on Amazon to decide to do an automatic percentage of donation with every sale to the charity of their choice. Did yeah. I miss anything in there? No, that's perfect. I would just add that with Amazon Smile, for those who are not using that yet, definitely do it. It's Instead of going to amazon.com, you go to smile.amazon.com. And you can also turn it on in your Amazon app um, and you designate a nonprofit. And yeah, every percentage of you know your Amazon purchases, Amazon makes a donation. So it's not like you're being charged extra. The prices are all the same. Um, yeah, it's not money out of like the customer's pocket. It's just money that Amazon then donates. So I, yeah, I did not free know money. you could turn it on in the app. Thank you for that. I knew that I could do it on the desktop. But I didn't know about the app. I just learned about it on the app, and I've been kicking myself because I right. mostly stop on the app. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how did I not know that this wasn't turned on? Yeah, it's under settings somewhere. I had no idea. That will be getting taken care of today. Thank you. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I did not know. And it's funny because, India, I want you to, to hop in. But I, I have to just say, knowing that, Knowing that I did not know all of these things that you had to do and this long process and the fact that you, you know, are an active member in the community and have been continuing with your imperfect allyship, you are really making folks look bad that act like they don't have time. (laughs) I just needed to call that out for a second. (laughs) Can we acknowledge that on top of, you know, the day-to-day life of being a parent that you also navigated (laughs) COVID-19 quarantines, um, multiple different 
disasters in your state. True. <laughs> right. Being an ally, starting a nonprofit. <laughs> That's well, a thanks. What, what are we missing here? I think there's right. more to this list. Well, probably just the research part that was. That's mostly yeah. my husband, but I've been trying to keep up. And then on top of all of that, like, you know, for those that are not in the space to see firsthand, you show up and you're really supportive of all the members and you've offered for some to provide any guidance if they decide that they want to create their own nonprofit. I mean, there's just a lot that I'm like, you're officially Wonder Woman. Oh, mm-hmm. you guys are so sweet. That's very nice. And that's not true. Um. I think I me- I mentioned this in the community and I think something that I learned uh, right at the beginning of this whole journey was I went to a support group and the person speaking was talking about how all of us have a limited capacity just to live life and then also to support other people. And when you're confronted with a shocking situation or a grieving situation or just something going on in life, right? Like you might be maxed out of your capacity and you just might be operating on survival mode um, for like a long stretch of time. And that was comforting to me because I think it, you know, without being like letting myself off the hook, but it was also just like, okay, I don't have to, um, I can just be in survival mode and that's okay. And, um, you know, the example he used was like, if you're operating at full capacity, then something like a traffic jam might send you over the edge, right? Whereas maybe on another day, you might just say, oh, well, there's a traffic jam and I'll get there when I get there. I I mean, I don't know who says that really about traffic, but (laughs) but that that kind of thing, right? Like all the little things are too much. Um, But I think that was helpful because then I was able to be really mindful of my own energy and my own capacity. And then notice when, oh, okay, like today is a good day. Today feels easier. Today is a day I could um, hop in the community and comment on everyone's posts and like absorb them and, and, and give feedback and not be consumed with my own day to day. Um, So yeah, I think I don't know, just that imagery of that capacity, kind of like that bar graph of capacity and like, oh, I'm bouncing up against it today or, oh, no, I have some Mm -hmm. excess capacity today um, was just helpful. I think that's a great visual because the beauty of being in a community space is that everybody's capacity of their capacity doesn't have to be the same at all times. And so like you kind of have that room to be like, okay. I do have this and this is where I am right now where for somebody else they might be running on fumes mm-hmm. and when it's a day that you're like I have nothing for you know anyone kind of outside my household um, you know other people may be running with extra capacity to to kind of share and I think that there's 
there's sometimes a lot of validity in recognizing where we operate as a unit in ways that we don't even always recognize. Totally. Yeah. I think there's something very elegant about that. And I like to think that we're all, all connected, right? Like the whole world. And we have this communal consciousness or whatever. And so it's like, if, if one part over here isn't working well, so over here, it probably is working well. And like, how can we balance that out or support one another? Right. right. Absolutely. Maybe that's kind of utopian. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Keep hope alive. Right. <laughs> so India, how do you think you want to try to round out the conversation? It feels weird just to, to end it in my normal way. I'm like, no, because honestly, as we're talking, I'm like, I, I appreciate this conversation because we're talking about something that I feel like is important and it's bigger than self. And with a lot of the things that have been happening recently, focusing on, focusing on something bigger than self has given me the opportunity to work on my own capacity at the moment. So thank you, Hannah, for that visual because I think I needed that too. Agreed. Um, I would want to know if there's anything that you would want to leave those that are reading or listening to this episode with um, that you feel like is like a must know about being an ally or supporting and facilitating change, um, specifically with the uh, LMNA related congenital muscular dystrophy. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, there's a lot to say, I think, but I'll try to keep something short. <laughs> That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. Wow. What I've found for myself as being part of the community and also um, somebody who has needed the support as well, has been able to maybe give some support, hopefully. Um, is that I've been trying to find areas that feel like I can make progress in, if that makes sense. Like, for instance, um, I think, Erica, you're always talking about being in action. And I think that every day or week or month or year, um, there's the potential to take actions in so many different ways that for me, it's almost like finding the way that um, feels best aligned right now and um, trying to focus and not feel overwhelmed by like all the things that need to get done and all the ways in which um, I need to learn and practice but finding things like bites to work on um, right. on a continuous right. basis. Um, and so, for instance, just one quick example for the foundation, at least, was that we very mindfully decided that 
we were going to call our purpose our purpose and not our mission statement. Um, and, you know, we've had long conversations, I think, in the community about the language mm-hmm. that we use and um, words that have just become ingrained in our in our in our lexicon and in the English language. And obviously we know that the English language takes words from all cultures and countries and other languages and, you know, changes them and evolves them. And um, when I first heard like someone bring up the fact that a mission statement um, can be triggering to some folks because of like the colonialist um, history and overtones at first I thought, well, you know, it's become so much more than that at this point in our life. Like it's become so ingrained. It's almost like a a mission statement of a nonprofit is just like a thing. Like it's a thing that you're supposed to have, right? Like so who am I to say like, no, I'm not going to call it a mission statement when like the world says it's called a mission statement. Um, <laughs> but but then thinking more about it, it's like, well, but why not? It doesn't matter. Like we can call it the purpose. And that is, um, you know, an, a valid term. And it might not be the standard term these days, but maybe it will be one day. And so we're like happy to, to move in that direction and like draw attention to the fact that, you know, that's important to us to try to just be mindful of the language we're using and like we're not going to get it right all the time of course but we just got to keep being aware and um, trying our best um, and then on the receiving end too I think you know in terms of LMNA related congenital muscular dystrophy it's I mean it's just rough because you know the it's almost like Austin's mind is very bright but his body is you know, kind of wasting away. And so it's very physical for us as his caretakers. Um, and yeah, I mean, and just all the various needs, constant needs and equipment needs and things that like I wouldn't have considered um, or thought about. Um, I think I saw someone's tweet the other day. I don't know who it is, so I can't attribute it, but it said something like, uh, I think it's harder to get a, I think it might be harder to get a wheelchair, a new wheelchair in the U.S. than it is to get a gun. I was like, oh my God, that's probably true, actually. Um, There's a problem with that. That sounds accurate, though. I know, right? Yes, it does. I can't validate it, but it it sounds right. Um, Just hearing personal anecdotes of, you know, insurance doesn't cover this and well, you just got a new wheelchair, so like you can't get an upgrade even though you might need it. Or uh, I don't know, just so many intricacies and behind-the-scenes things that one might not even consider, right? Like you might see a person in a wheelchair and you just have no idea like everything that goes into that person's life, right? Right. A- apart from just what you see. Um, so... I'm, I'm, I like to be an open book. Like I will not get offended. Whatever anybody wants to ask me about anything is totally fine. I think it's better to just, um, share as much as possible. So people like know what's up and it don't feel uncomfortable. It just is what it is. And I'm 
I'm happy to like be the teacher if that's what somebody wants. So, um, yeah. We really appreciate that about you. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, Thank I mean, you. and hopefully not in like a, you know, overbearing way, but just like a guide, a person who I'm here, like you don't have to feel embarrassed or like think that you're going to offend me. That's all I mean. <laughs> That's not always available. And so say like you being like, Hey, this is here. Like that's, it's very much appreciated. It is. It well, is. thanks. Well, I appreciate being here and, um, I would just, you know, also love to say that, like, I know you're going to put our website in the show notes, um, which is lcmdresearch.org. It's a pretty bare bones website at this point, I must say. That's on my list of things to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes. The information I need is there. Um, and I know every episode you mentioned, you know, that one action and how that's a part of what we talk about in the community. We like to leave our listeners with one action or our readers with one action they can take to start some changes. Is there any one action that you'd like them to take? Oh, I, I don't know that there's any, uh, any particular action I would ask anybody to take. I would just say, you know, learn as much as you can and find actions that work now in this moment in your life and take those. And then hopefully tomorrow there'll be another one, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I have a very selfish action that I'm going to insert in here. So yes, yes. Listen to Hannah and <laughs> I was going to be selfish if you didn't do it. I was like, I did it. I need you to head on over to lcmdresearch.org and read and donate some money, please. Thank you. Thank please you. Thank you. That's the action today. Thank you yes. all so much. Thank you so much for having this conversation and for being here with us. Thank you, Hannah. Thank Thank you so much. This episode gave you a little bit of a look into what it looks like to create a nonprofit, but it also gave you some of the humanization of it. Very often we can look at a cause that we donate to, whether it's our time, our resources, whatever our collateral happens to be, and we can feel kind of disconnected to it. And I greatly appreciate Hannah coming and humanizing the nonprofit that she has created and the importance of supporting it and it's not just about Austin but for every single person every child every family that is affected by this disease and so I am going to ask for you today to go to lcmdresearch.org again that is lcmdresearch.org and to donate today it will also be in the show notes so that you will have that as well Please feel free to share it and allow them to hear this episode, hear a little bit more uh, about it, why it was created, and the good that it can do in the world. So again, this podcast is an opportunity for us to be able to be a part of the impact that we want to create in the world. This is our way of being able to share the important things for people to be able to, to do, to amplify our ways of creating, again, that change that we're seeking and the ways that we can do things differently. 
And so for listening in today, for going over to LCMD Research, learning more and seeing how you can support the cause. I appreciate you. Thank you, as always, for being here and listening in. So until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?